It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Thursday, January 7th, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The Sitka Tribe of Alaska in November won another round in its legal fight with the state over the management of the commercial herring fishery. And next week, the court will hear new oral arguments. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. Andy Erickson is a lawyer with the firm Landy Bennett Blumstein, representing Sitka Tribe of Alaska in its legal battle with the state that spanned over two years. He says November's proceedings were essentially part two of the court's ruling on whether the state's interpretation of a specific herring fishery regulation was lawful. In March, Judge Daniel Shalley ruled that the state had failed to demonstrate it was providing a reasonable opportunity for subsistence harvesters before opening the commercial fishery. And in November, Shalley issued a second order for partial summary judgment in Sitka Tribe's favor. Shalley determined that the state had failed to follow a regulation established by the Board of Fish in 2002. That ADF&G must consider the quality and quantity of herring spawn on branches when making those determinations about whether there's a reasonable opportunity and whether to distribute the commercial fishery by time and area. In the 19-page decision, Shally said that if ADF&G does consider the quality of spawn when making management decisions about the fishery, quote, its consideration is not clearly or adequately reflected in the record. Shally wrote, quote, the consideration need not be immediately before the decision is made, but the consideration must have some substance. The ruling means ADF&G must make some changes. Moving forward, the department must demonstrate in the record how it's considering the quality and quantity of herring eggs as it makes management decisions. But Erickson says how the state interprets Shally's ruling as it manages the upcoming Sitka Sacro herring fishery is still up in the air. That's one of the unresolved questions because the court did say that ADF&G has some discretion in deciding how it considers quality and quantity. In a press release from Sitka Tribe of Alaska, Lisa Gassman, STA general manager, said, quote, this should send a signal to ADF&G that the board's regulations implementing the subsistence priority must be followed when managing the commercial fishery. Lead attorney Sky Starkey said he hoped the court's decision would result in a revival of a previously cooperative relationship between STA and ADF&G. Erickson says the next big milestone for the Sitka Tribe's case is just days away. The third and final aspect of this case, as it is right now, is the, is a constitutional claim. And, and the question there is whether ADF&G has complied with its constitutional duties regarding the management of this fishery. Oral argument is scheduled for January 14th at 8.30 a.m. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. The Haines Borough says it's unsafe for some residents to access their homes on Beach Road since a landslide swept through the area last month. Anxious to return, homeowners expressed their frustration with the borough during a Monday town hall teleconference with state legislators. KHNS's Henry Leisha reports. The landslide that swept down Mount Riley on December 2nd has created a hazardous situation for people living along Beach Road in Haines. After surveying the area, geologists with the Alaska Division of Geologic and Geophysical Surveys said that the fractured bedrock along the hillside could come loose with no warning. For that reason, the borough closed access to the slide area and the homes nearest to it. It's uncertain when the road will open again and whether homeowners will be able to move back to their properties. We do not feel that we have open and transparent communication with the team 
making decisions about our future. Haynes resident Todd Winkle owns and operates a lodge along Beach Road where visitors can rent cabins and hotel rooms. Winkle asked the Upper Lynn Canal's state legislators to help make sure residents are included in the decisions about the future of Beach Road. Residents who live underneath that mass of rock, we have an idea of what we would like to see, which includes taking some risk, but it's also risk to us as victims and it's risk to our property. And we would like to have a conversation about that. Other Beach Road residents who called into the teleconference said they wanted to be allowed to begin restoring road access and electricity in order to gather belongings and protect their homes from deteriorating while unoccupied. The Upper Lynn Canal's state senator, Jesse Keel, said while there are public safety considerations, he would follow up with local officials to see if they can facilitate better access to the slide area and improve communication with Beach Road residents. When it comes to um, access to those houses out Beach Road, uh, I really do want to work uh, with you and, and, and Todd and see what we can coordinate. Um, I, I'm inclined to agree that, you know, uh, months and months to get out there is, is really problematic. The Hainsborough has eased restrictions on access to Beach Road in recent weeks. The mandatory evacuation area has shrunk as geologists have been able to get better information about the stability of the slope above Beach Road. While initially the borough said it would prosecute residents who entered the slide area, Hainsborough Mayor Douglas Olrood says it has since changed its policy. We let them know we were not going to be prosecuting any Beach Road residents for going out to their property that, uh, or crossing the slide in the hazard area. That we understand that while we consider that a extremely dangerous area and do not advise people to go there, that residents of that area can access it at their own risk, knowing that each of us has a different tolerance of risk. The Hainsborough has been updating its website and social media with the latest geologic analysis of the slide area. Olrood says that the borough has been in regular contact with displaced residents over email and in person. They have also set up weekly meetings where Beach Road residents can ask questions to the team of geologists analyzing the stability of the area. Olrood says the borough is doing the best it can to be transparent. I, I think part of it is we're not um, giving them the information that they want to hear, and it's not that we're holding anything back. Um, what they want to hear is that they can go to their houses, that we're going to be building a road, they're going to be putting power in there. Uh, and I understand that. The information that I've been given is that that's not safe for us to do at this point in time. Recently, the borough and Alaska Department of Transportation solicited proposals from geotechnical engineers for a report on the slide area. The report will be used to help inform decisions about when road access and electricity can be restored and whether houses will be safe enough to reoccupy in the coming months. Tuesday was the deadline for engineering consultants to submit proposals. In Haines, I'm Henry Leisha. The future is looking a little brighter for the money needed to pay for operations at a state-owned, nonprofit-run hatchery at Blind Slough on Mitkoff Island, south of Petersburg. Crystal Lake Hatchery lost a portion of its state funding last year. However, hatchery managers are hoping that will be restored with additional funding to fill in what they hope is only a short-term shortfall. Joe Vicknicki reports. A state surcharge on sport fishing license ended in 2020. It funded construction of hatcheries and anchorage and Fairbanks along with annual payments for king salmon production at Crystal Lake and another hatchery in Juneau. 
The $200,000 is only a portion of the money that pays for operations at the Blind Slough facility, which is run by the Ketchikan-based Southern Southeast Regional Aquaculture Association, known by its acronym, SARA. SARA General Manager David Landis told the Petersburg Assembly this month the state has committed to continuing another portion of the hatchery's cost, which comes from a mix of federal and state sport fishing money. Gradually, since August, we've received more and more positive uh, messages from uh, the governor's office, uh, the Department of Fish and Game Commissioner's office, through the Sport Fish Division, that uh, that it, that funding is uh, more secure than we were initially uh, fearful that it might be in in August and, and September last year. Landis explained that Sarah also pays about $600,000 for Crystal Lake's operations. Normally, the hatchery organization funds the bulk of its programs through cost recovery fishing or catching and selling some of the returning salmon. Two years of poor returns has Sarah borrowing to cover its costs and looking for ways to trim its budget. That's not a healthy situation. That's not a sustainable situation. But every every dollar that uh, we spend really is is a dollar that we're borrowing. Um, so that's that's a, a pretty tough situation to be in, and we just really cannot afford to take on additional costs at this at this time. So again, this uh, comes at a at a very inopportune time. It's a tough time for the state budget as well. However, the Dunleavy administration last year proposed bills that would have continued the sport fishing license surcharge. Those didn't pass in a COVID-shortened session. Sarah's hopeful they'll be reintroduced in the session that starts up this month. If that legislation does pass this year, it will still leave Sarah with a one-year shortfall of the $200,000. Sarah's board of directors in December voted to revisit Crystal Lake production in March and could reduce its releases that are mainly caught by the sport fishing fleet. Landis said Sarah did not plan to change Chinook releases at Blind Slough for the foreseeable future. Release of Kings at City Creek in Frederick Sound, though, and a coho release at Blind Slough would be first on the chopping block if the organization does need to cut. We think it's very important, I'm sure you do too, to have a continued enhancement program at Crystal Lake. And again, um, we wish this were coming at a better time when we had a lot more flexibility in, in terms of what we are able to do internally to uh, rearrange and, and backfill and, and make things work like we're usually able to. Landis said Sarah would be trying multiple avenues to fill the $200,000 funding gap for one year. The short-term solutions could be a state appropriation or funding associated with the Pacific Salmon Treaty. Petersburg's Assembly talked about sending a letter in support of hatchery funding to state elected officials and could vote on that later this month. In Petersburg, I'm Joe Vicknicki. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. This is Morning.